Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Coming up, we start with a roundtable. Chad Finn, the sports media writer and general columnist of the Boston Globe, and John Orand, the sports media writer for Sports Business Daily and Sports Business Journal. They are regulars when it comes to this podcast, and we discuss many things, but we lead with the big news today, and that is the United States, Mexico, and Canada getting the 2026 World Cup and what that means for Fox Sports, who has the English-speaking rights to that tournament. That is a major, major coup for Fox Sports, uh, which they got without the bidding (laughs) being open. So we get into all that. Um, discuss as well Fox's big month coming up, the uh, the Fox, Comcast, Disney situation, as well as the NBA deal that Turner and ESPN signed. Then Isabel comes on and discusses her Capitals coverage, which has been phenomenal, and just the a crazy amount of attention nationally that that team has gotten since they've won the Stanley Cup, as well as uh, what was an incredibly interesting experience for Isabel and that is being part of a, the Moscow Bureau of the Washington Post and some of the stories that she covered there, non-sports stories. So John Oran, Chad Finn, Isabel Kershudian, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. All right, and as promised, we bring in John Oran of the Sports Business Daily Journal and Chad Finn of the Boston Globe. John, how are you this morning? Artie, are you feeling okay, man? You're usually like one take, Richard. This is an intro that's taken – I'm looking – Seven minutes I've been on the on the line. Everything all right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Th- by the way, John, this is easily the worst. This is the worst job I've ever done in terms of introing the podcast. Not that anybody's going to hear it, but this is probably take number nine. Chad can Canada correct me if I'm wrong. Canada you in a bad way, i got to say. Yeah. I've mangled everything. I haven't decided if I should do the intro before or after the podcast is over. I'm fairly certain I mangled Isabel Kershudian's name. Um, so we're off to a flying start. Chad, how are you? Uh, in, are you in Maine, Chad, or in Boston today? I am in uh, the scenic wilderness of Maine, and I'm glad you pronounced my name right. That's all I care about. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're off to a great start, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, if I it, we should we should I should sell the extras uh, of the screw ups for the the big price of a, of zero. That's uh, pretty much what it uh, deserves. All right, let's move on from my um, my inability to be a good host, and let's talk about the big news of today. We are taping this on Wednesday, June 13th at noon, and a couple hours earlier, the United States, Mexico, and Canada, as part of their tri-bid, were awarded the 2026 World Cup. That is obviously monumental news. For soccer in the country I'm in now, Canada, in the country you guys are in in the United States. But, John, here's where I want to start. The biggest winner, in my opinion, of this, beyond the host bids, obviously, is Fox Sports and Telemundo, who already have the rights to the 2026 World Cup. So while this World Cup in Russia probably will be a little bit of a financial dud for them because the United States is not in, the Qatar World Cup obviously has its own issues. The 2026 World Cup, John, is the biggest ATM going. What a great day for Fox Sports and Telemundo. You agree? You know, yeah, we spilled a ton of ink talking about how the, the lack of a U.S. team in Russia is really going to hurt Fox and how they're going to lose a ton of money. And everybody at Fox is like, you know, just wait. Every executive I said was like, wait before you sort of declare this to, to be awful because they got a below market value 
for the 2026 World Cup, and now it's going to be a domestic World Cup. I mean, that's going to print money for them. So this deal is, by any measure, just a great deal for Fox. One, one of the all-time great sports, sports media deals, in my opinion. I agree, John. I don't think that's overstated. Chad, um, again, we are still far away from 2026, but if you just sort of extrapolate, even in the minimum, soccer will continue to grow in the U.S., and the amount of run-up for the 2026 World Cup in terms of the free publicity Fox is going to get for this tournament, I think John is correct. I don't think it's overstated to say this is going to turn out to be one of the greatest broadcasting coups um, in in sports broadcasting history. Yeah, it's fantastic, provided the U.S. Uh, men's program gets it, gets it back together in the next eight years. But uh, uh, the timing is especially uh, especially perfect for them because they've got uh, they've got this World Cup launching from Russia officially tomorrow, and it feels it's kind of got an underwhelming sense to it right now because uh, the U.S. obviously isn't there. Fox kind of skimped on who they're bringing over there. I think they only have two broadcast teams of the six that they're using. Everybody else is doing it from the studio. And uh, we're going to see the fallout from the U.S. not getting there. So uh, it's a big bonus for them and and kind of a feel-good thing for them to get this wrapped up right now at this point and to be able to look ahead to when uh, when they're going to be printing money because there's a little bit of – few question marks surrounding the World Cup that they've got to, that they're going to be dealing with right now. Yeah, John, I want to stay on this. Obviously, Chad's not wrong. The number the group stage ratings are will be down because the US isn't in there. If the US is in the group stage, you're guaranteed to get between 12 million, you know, 18 million for at least a couple of those games and that game changes everything. We're not going to get that. I'm a huge soccer fan, particularly a global soccer fan, so I'm going to watch everything. But I do think there's a ton of casual sports fans who probably, like Chad says, will will tune out a little bit, uh, at least until the final, because the U.S. isn't in. But sticking on the 2026 bid, John, what if you remember this, and I I looked back at the piece that I wrote on this or the pieces I wrote on this in 2015, um, the, the bid was never open. ESPN was unaware of any negotiations for FIFA media rights for the 2026 World Cup. Bob Lee, who was a signature anchor of ESPN soccer coverage, tweeted at the time, did FIFA just grant rights to WC2026 without opening it up to bidding, which they indeed did. So, you know, I don't know if this turns out to be a makeup for Fox because of, uh, you know, the possible uh, ratings problems for the Qatar tournament. But that was another fat. When I looked back, that was a fascinating part of this. That was that FIFA just granted this to Telemundo and Fox Sports without open bidding. And can you imagine what the opening open bidding would be for a domestic World Cup in the U.S.? Well, beyond domestic World Cup, you had John Skipper, the soccer-loving John Skipper at the top of ESPN, <laughs> dying to put together a bid, and and that was at a time before cord cutting really took place and before the NBA contract sort of became, you know, an an albatross in terms of a a rights deal that they had to pay out. They had a lot of money and they wanted to to, to get soccer back because they thought that they had built up the the World Cup and they didn't and they never got the chance. And so that was even before they they knew it was going to be a domestic game. So, So if I'm associated with FIFA, they left at so much money on the table and and it does suggest that you know it was a make good for what was going on in, in Qatar or, or Qatar. I'm never quite sure how to pronounce a country, but um, <laughs> it, 
but uh, but it, it's it's something that uh, it's uh, I, th- there are a couple of reasons, and I'm not one, I'm not prone to overstatement. I, I mean, there are a couple of reasons why I think this is one of the all time great media rights deals for a for a U.S. media company. Yeah, I, I agree, Chad. Um, sticking with this, um, how much? I mean, again, we're, we're and John, you should answer after Chad. We're obviously going to guess here. But how much does a U.S. World Cup, U.S., Canada, Mexico World Cup, how do you think that impacts what Fox does with soccer over the next eight years? You know, they obviously have um, MLS. They obviously have the rights to the World Cup and Women's World Cup, et cetera. But I wonder, do they now start making a monster investment in shoulder programming? Do they decide to put or cover soccer? on their digital properties, maybe hire I mean, they have no writers now, but maybe hire a soccer writer or two for right now. I'm talking about for FoxSports.com. Do we start to see the undisputed, the undisputeds and the herd with Colin Coward talk more soccer because Fox now has this? How do you think this plays out among Fox Sports's overall strategy across all its platforms? Well, we'll know when Nick Wright has a ridiculous hot take on soccer that uh, they got the, the memo on, on talking more about the sport. But I think that's absolutely what they do, and it's smart business, right? It's, uh, it's, you've got a property like this uh, where you're in a situation right now where it's uh, probably a little bit disappointing, to say the least, because the U.S. isn't there. Eight years from now, they've got an absolutely ideal situation for what right now looks like a, uh, a, a, an absolute steal, a bargain rate, uh, of course, you're going to do everything in that interim to promote uh, promote the sport and promote your property as much as you possibly can. Now, I'm uh, I'm curious to see how they do that because uh, I mean they use uh, FS2 or whatever they call it now, uh, basically as a dumping ground for content. I wonder if that's something where they could end up uh, using more soccer coverage there, or uh, if it does become a bigger part of just a bigger part of the programming in general, where it doesn't get quite what the NFL gets from Fox because that's obviously the right, obviously a, a, a rights partner. But uh, maybe what they do with the NBA. I mean, Fox does a ton of NBA discussion and really has nothing to do with the league whatsoever. I would be interested to see if uh, if soccer ends up cutting into that a little bit. John, uh, my fi- yeah, go ahead. Don't forget that they, they lost all these windows with the UFC now that they're that they're going to have to fill. So I. Couldn't yeah. agree with uh, Chad Moore. I mean, I, I think that's what you—that's certainly what you're going to see in the run-up to it. What I'm more interested in is what's ESPN going to do because they—they when they did the MLS deal, they did that w- w- with the thought that they were going to end up doing, uh, you know, having a seat at the table for the negotiations for the the uh, World Cup. Well, now the World Cup is going to Fox. It's going to be a big deal. Does ESPN still want to support MLS in, in the run-up to the World Cup? Um, I, I think NBC is certainly, you know, they've shown that they love the English Premier League and they'll stick with the English Premier League. But like some of these other soccer leagues, is, are, are they sort of going to de facto go to um, go to Fox or are these, you know, how are these other big media entities going to approach the sport when Fox really controls what's going to be the biggest part of the sport for the next decade or so? That's that's an interesting question, John, because, um, you know, Turner obviously has the Champions League, so they have to promote global soccer. I'm not sure how much they're going to do on the World Cup. But to me, John, and I'll stick with you here, I think ESPN goes big. They, they 
they they I think can steal a little bit of the not a little bit I think they could steal a lot of the audience in the run up to the World Cup and again this is my sort of perspective but I I think it's an honest and true perspective I think more people in the country trust ESPN with global soccer coverage than they do Fox and I think they can trade off their remarkably terrific remote productions of previous World Cups to at least be a destination place in terms of all the information and all the run-up to the World Cup. And then, yeah, people are going to watch Fox because Fox has the games. But I think ESPN could um, could get a lot of audience in the shoulder programming, both in terms of the run-up to the World Cup and actually during the World Cup. I would go head-to-head with Fox and put my own World Cup post-game shows on and try to compete with Fox for audience. I think that if John Skipper were the president and he loves soccer and he, he was devoted to, uh, to, to, to paying for soccer, that, that that would have been more likely. Um, I don't know yet with uh, Jimmy Pitaro at the, at the helm what his view of soccer is and sort of what Disney's corporate view of soccer is. And, and, uh, and hmm. so I, I, I don't know. And I think that's something to, to take a look at. I do think that for casual viewers – uh, I think you're, you're talking about hardcore fans. For casual viewers, they'll they'll be watching the game and then they'll stay for whatever post game show, you know, is on Fox after that. I mean, if I if I were programming ESPN, I'd let, go ahead and let Fox have that and and do what you're good at, which is you know baseball coverage, basketball coverage, you know whatever else happens to be coming during that time. Not me, John. I'm going head to head, baby. Uh, yeah, but last but one talking, on for you, I think John. You're talking for the hardcore fans. I am. That's true. John, what is up with FS2, as Chad mentioned? I, I mean, does that can that ever become anything viable? I mean, I know F- Fox now has a lot of sports inventory, so they can certainly float stuff to FS2, but my God, I don't think I've ever met a human being who, you know, when I've discussed what I do in just sports media, who's been like, man, I love that FS2. It's my favorite. <laughs> it's my favorite channel on the dial. Look, if they if they end up getting some distribution and if they get end up getting uh, more rights, I think that that it, it, it could be okay. Right now, it's sort of a placeholder channel, but uh, you know, so the Fox's uh, Comcast is trying to get Fox's entertainment assets. One way that it could sort of, sort of sweeten the pot is say, hey, we'll give you added uh, distribution for FS2 and put it put it out there uh, with everything else. So a lot of it depends on how many different uh, distributors it gets in front of. But um, but yeah, right now it's a. Uh, I'm a sports media r- reporter. I don't even get it. I don't think I can get it. So I I I, I don't even know where it is. <laughs> uh, Chad, by the way, in terms of your uh, thought about Fox uh, Sports One personalities talking about their properties, the best example of that uh, when I have Latell on, we both enjoy this. Is Colin Coward's newfound love for uh, the WWE, a guy who trashed <laughs> wrestling for so long in his show. All of a sudden is like the third, uh, Mc, you know, the second Mc, Vince McMahon's son. So it's fantastic, actually, to uh, to watch that transition. <laughs> Chad, I'm going to stick with you. Um, this is a huge week for Fox beyond what we just talked about getting the 2026 uh, or you know the 2026 uh, uh, World Cup landing in their lap uh, domestically. They have the U.S. Open from Shinnecock Hills, and they have the start of the World Cup. That's a monster weekend coming up for Fox. And beyond. Um, again, Fox isn't going anywhere. They're a major player on the scene. But how important do you think the next five or six weeks are for Fox Sports, particularly how they cover the World Cup in Russia? 
Well, it's enormous for a couple of reasons. I mean, uh, I, I think there's, I don't know if it's a level above casual golf fans, but certainly casual golf fans don't e- probably don't recognize Fox as a, uh, a television golf destination yet. They still think of NBC, CBS, uh, you know, Nance and Tirico and voices like that. And I, I, I think it's taken a little bit of time here for Fox to, uh, get ingrained in the minds of golf fans uh, of one, you know, not the ones who are watching every weekend, no matter what the tournament is, but uh, ones who, who, who tune, turn in for, uh, you know, the big events uh, uh, and uh, uh, have a, uh, have sort of an eye on it throughout the rest of the year, but aren't really paying that much of attention. So this is a real, another opportunity anyway, for them to seize that casual viewer and to, to remind them that, uh, yeah, Fox is uh, in the golf game now and, uh, we're going to do this right. You know, so, so many hiccups at the beginning uh, when they started uh, when they started covering golf with, with Jack uh, Joe Buck and the uh, certainly mixed reviews he got. Uh, Greg Norman's uh, complete lack of energy when you thought he would be somebody who would be a, a really good analyst just based on his personality on the court and what we've seen of him on camera in the past. So uh, they didn't get up to a good start. Uh, with golf, uh, I don't think they've really made much of an imprint with those casual golf fans, and uh, this is an opportunity for them to make more headway there. Uh, and overall, of course, it's a huge week. I, I'm a little, you know, I've been looking at sort of the rosters of who they have over in Russia for the soccer and uh, how they're covering this, and I think they probably deserve more criticism than they've gotten. We'll see how it goes, but uh, with people doing it from the studio with no real no real uh, enormous names uh, other than what you sort of what you would expect. You know, Rob Stone's going to be in the studio. Uh, uh, Alexi Lawless is somebody who's going to have an analyst role. Those sort of things are expected. But uh, it feels like uh, they've kind of cut some corners here because uh, assuming because the U.S. team isn't there and they know that they're going to take a little bit of a hit there. So I'm curious to see how it goes. We're talking about how ESPN might be able to give them a run for their money head-to-head. I look at the soccer rosters of people qualified to talk about an event like this, and even though uh, Fox has the event, I feel like ESPN has the advantage in, 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 in talking about it and discussing it and, and uh, uh, hit, hitting it off with the viewership. So we'll see We'll see what Jimmy Pitaro does there, but uh, I feel like there's an, uh, an opportunity here, even with the big week for Fox. Uh, with, with the multi-sports is an opportunity for ESPN to cut into that audience a little bit. John, I want, I want you to follow up on that if you could. The um, It's interesting because Chad is correct. Fox has received a lot of criticism for its golf coverage, far less over the last, I think, couple of tournaments that they have done. The soccer one is interesting because, you know, I talked to David Neal, uh, who is in charge of Fox Fox's World Cup production in Russia. I'm not sure if you have, John. But he would argue that it's it's overblown, the whole discussion about broadcasters calling games off the monitor in Los Angeles because so many of the world's broadcasters, that is what they do. They, they are not always on site. They're calling games back in the studio. He says that is very traditional for soccer. I think Fox has to obviously deal with the fact that you can make the argument ESPN's best ever production ever in the history of its company was the World Cup in South Africa, and they I I feel um, from that in then 2014 did an outstanding job in Brazil. So I think Fox, you know, soccer fans are really tough graders. So are golf fans, and I I think there's a lot of skepticism, and I think fair skepticism for Fox on both golf 
and the World Cup. I'd be curious just your thoughts on what Chad said and and what I'm bringing up, the, the sort of skepticism for the viewer when it comes to Fox covering these two specific sports. Yeah, uh, David Neal is great. He's very good at what he does, and, and, and he has a history of putting on really good events. And he's right I, in, in a certain sense. I mean, I, one of my favorite stories that I do every Olympics is I just go to, to NBC and I sort, sort of walk around. You have these announcers. You know, they're not even in a big room. They're in this, like, closet, you know, uh, narrating what's happening, you know, across, across the globe. So it's something that does happen. Where, where I'm going to call a little BS on this, though, is that if the U.S. were in, then they would have, uh, they, they would have had more, um, more talent over there. They, they wouldn't have been That's calling right. as as many games from uh, from the United States. So, you know, what Fox is doing is a, you know, if for from a business standpoint, it's smart business. They're not spending as much because they're not they, there's not as much advertising because there's not a U.S. team. Um, but but to, to, to pretend that that people aren't going to notice, of course you notice. Every, you, you almost always notice when when this happens. I think. Today's episode of the Sports Media Podcast is sponsored by OneBlade. A lot of men struggle with the shaving, from ingrown hairs to razor burn to just overall skin irritation. It's a painful chore that most men don't enjoy. Now, there's a razor that takes the pain out of shaving and makes it an enjoyable experience that you'll actually look forward to. It's called OneBlade. Lou Pellegrino, my producer, is a huge fan of OneBlade, as I am. We both highly recommend it, because OneBlade will give you the best shave of your life, With no razor burn or ingrown hairs, it's been obsessively engineered to be the optimal tool for performance shaving. From the perfect pivot in weight to the finest materials such as ultra-high-grade German stainless steel. This is an heirloom-quality razor you can pass down for generations. Each one is hand-assembled and serial-numbered, and every one blade is backed by a full 60-day money-back guarantee and a lifetime warranty. So if your family has been asking what you want for Father's Day and beyond, give them this URL, onebladeshave.com slash Richard. That's onebladeshave.com slash Richard. Just for Father's Day, you'll receive a Yeti Rambler with all your razor purchases. Again, visit onebladeshave.com slash Richard, onebladeshave.com slash Richard. John, I want to stick with you. Um, this is this is much more up your alley than mine. Me for this is this is sort of right in your wheelhouse compared to uh, what Chad and I do a lot of stories on. I think more personality driven, consumer driven. The can you give us your sense of where things stand right now in terms of Comcast trying to throw a wrench into uh, the Walt Disney Company's? Uh, I think I saw these numbers: fifty-two point four billion dollar purchase <laughs> of uh, much of Rupert Murdoch's twenty-first century Fox. Uh, Assets, uh, Comcast, Brian Roberts, obviously want to get in this game. If that did happen, if somehow Fox agreed to sell to Comcast, they essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, they'd essentially owned the majority of regional sports networks across the country. Uh, it would be, I mean, just a crazy monopoly when it comes to RSN. So I'd be curious. I'll just sit back and listen to, one, where you think that stands now, and two, what the ramifications would be if um, – if ESPN Disney got this, or if Comcast last second comes up and is able to swipe these assets. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the Comcast angle of it, Richard, because uh, you've heard 
good things and bad things about how their uh, regional networks have done in the last couple of years and, and whether the commitment was strong or whether it was wavering. And uh, I kind of look at it now and I say, if they do sneak in here um, and, and end up with uh, all those RSNs and the vast, vast majority of them, then uh, I wonder what that means. What does that mean for NBC? What does that mean for uh, what they're going to try to get onto those shows? Uh, I, I tend to think regionally they're, what they have right now is pretty pretty darn good. We have uh, up here in uh, New England. We have uh, we have our the NBC Sports uh, Boston, uh, which is obviously one of the ones based out of Philadelphia and Comcast, and it's probably the best thing. I say this as a uh, employee of uh, the Globe, which is sort of a sister to Nesson, uh, both owned by John Henry, but. Uh, NBC Sports Boston is is outstanding in terms of what it provides for coverage up here. And uh, if you get more, if they end up in this game a little bit deeper, you get more stuff like that nationally where, uh, yeah, they do do some of the hot take stuff from time to time, but generally it's really smart discussion with informed people. I think that's a real positive for uh, this type of programming as a whole. If it uh, ended up going a different direction, whether it's ESPN ultimately or uh, you know, we all know how Fox handles these sort of things and that sort of programming. I think it's a little less appealing in general than it would be uh, if NBC and, and Comcast ultimately ended up with this. But uh, it's fascinating to see how it plays out because there's still so many variables left in this. But uh, I, if you ask me what I think the best case scenario would be, I, it would be Comcast ending up with these. Uh, all right, John. Chad, Chad stole your thunder there, John. I was going to you first, but I like that Chad basically, like Kyrie Irving, basically oh, took it to I the lane there. That's all right. Yeah, I, I, it's a, I, typical, I agree with typical Boston. Typical topic? Boston. Yeah, typically right. Typical Boston <laughs> move by Chad sneaking in there. No, John. I know you you cover this. Um, uh, you know, this is your publication is going to be all over this over the next couple of weeks. So. Um, spell it out for me in terms of the different scenarios as to what it would mean for sports fans, depending on if these assets land with Disney or if these assets land with Comcast. Next, in the next couple of years, I, I think that the main thing to come out of the AT&T Time Warner is that it's going to put billions of more dollars in Rupert Murdoch's uh, pockets and, and uh, News Corp shareholders because it's uh, what this does – is that it makes it okay for Comcast then to come in and buy those those um, uh, assets. Earlier, there was a thought that that uh, the government would block it on, uh, on on various grounds, but since since AT and T Time Warner went through with no conditions at all, it it really makes it so much more likely that a big merger is going to take place. So Disney is either going to have to really pony up more than it was willing to pay, or it's going to go to Comcast, um, and. You know, in in either sense, I think what what, what you're going to see here is I think, frankly, both scenarios are good are good news for uh, for, for consumers, if, if, because uh, Disney and ESPN are going out with their you know ESPN Plus and and this over the top um, service, Comcast as as you both have said, have, you know if it gets the Fox RSNs, it's going to have RSNs virtually across the country. And this whole dream that I've been hearing about for, you know, 10 years of the iTunes of sports is really going to come close to, to fruition. So if, if you're in, you know, say uh, Boston and you want to see, you know, the, the Orioles playing, you can spend whatever price point they're going to get, $3, because you want to see that one game, you know, and, and, uh, and, and 
you know, if it goes to if it goes, the Orioles are actually a bad example because they're not in Comcast or Fox. But you know, the the idea of one company owning the local rights to all of these people, and then it'll be so much easier to just do a deal with the leagues and and really just start to do what you know Turner also was talking about. You know, you want to see the last five minutes of this basketball game, then you're going to pay three dollars to, to to watch that. I mean, that's coming a whole lot quicker than we think, and 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 that deal with Fox and Disney or Fox and, and Comcast is really going to accelerate things. John, I want to stay with that. Cause to me, that's pretty, I think that's kind of brilliant, uh, a brilliant addition to the marketplace. I know the NBA talked about, you know, basically being able to go on NBA.com. And if you wanted to just purchase a singular game, say, you know, I'm in New York and the Warriors and Rockets are battling for the number one seed in the West. And it's the last game of the season they happen to be playing each other. It's not on Turner or ESPN or one of the national carries. It's only on uh, regional, uh, regional in Bay Area or whatever in Houston. I love the idea that I can just basically decide to pay five dollars for for that game. Um, do you think what what kind of market you think there is for that? Because I think the market potential for these maybe you wouldn't call it a la carte, but like I guess as you're saying, sort of the iTunesization of sports. I think there's a monster market for that if they can have the technology where me as a consumer feels that like I can just basically I'm one click away from watching this and whether it's on my tablet or my phone, you know, I'm getting HD quality uh an HD quality experience. There's a massive market for that. You you already have like extra innings that's out there and you have, you know, NBA League Pass that's out there. These are out-of-market packages that are bringing like uh, like a ton of money to the leagues and 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 to the um the distributors that, that that handle them you also have a lot of people that say like well i don't want the full league pass so i'm just going to pass that would buy a various game i just want to see a game a week or i just want to see you know a game a month or, or whatever and you have incremental that can that can come from that i mean i i think that the the market has already shown that it's huge and it, it can only get bigger Chad, let's get to the important story. What are the what what odds do you put on LeBron James going to the Celtics? <laughs> on him talking to him or becoming one? <laughs> becoming a Celtic. I want your odds right now. If you had to if you had a Vegas handicap it for me. Seven to one? Ten to one? Hmm. Probably higher. Probably uh probably twenty one, twenty, twenty five to one. It's uh it's it's more reasonable than people I think nationally realize because the Celtics. What would have to happen? And we've gone over this a billion different times in a million different formats here in Boston already. Uh, I think uh, it's pretty divided here whether people would actually want him because it's so parochial. But it, it, what, what's been determined is it's reasonable. What would have to happen is he would have to decide he wanted to come here, sign a. Uh, opt into the last year of his deal with the Cavaliers, which I think is $35.2 million, something like 35 something like that, uh, and then say, I want to go to the Celtics. And, and uh, Celtics could do it with Hayward, who makes over $30 million, and Marcus Morris, and throwing, you know, Celtics could have four first-round picks next year, the way things are situated right now. So they have appealing picks to throw in uh, to entice Cleveland to do it. And Cleveland, why would they do it? Well, LeBron could walk. Uh, what, what's the better option? Letting LeBron walk away and you have Kevin Love and uh, you know the, the band of J.R. Smith behind him or 
is a trading LeBron to where he wants to go when you get Gordon Hayward, who uh, is an all-star caliber player, provided he's the same when he comes back from his foot injury and a bunch of appealing draft picks and, and so on. So uh, I think if LeBron wanted to come here, it would be very easy for the Celtics to do so. But uh, that is the issue that is the wild card in all of this, is where does LeBron really want to go? I mean, I feel like he threw two curveballs the two times he's hit free agency. Uh, we all remember the decision on ESPN and, and uh, taking his talents to South Beach, and uh, that was a bit of a surprise. And going back to Cleveland with the Lee Jenkins story dropping in SI was sort of a surprise, at least in the way it came about. So uh, he may have one more uh, one more uh, uh, surprising, unexpected move here uh, in his bag of tricks. Everybody seems to think it's L.A. or uh, maybe Houston, but uh, Boston has a shot at this, and uh, maybe there's another – uh, another couple of teams as well. Boston's not the front runner, but uh, it is in the race. John, I just wanted to no, hold, John. I was saying I wanted to make Chad feel good by giving him a Boston centric uh, question <laughs> because I want to give you because my real interest is on the Capitals coverage. So you are living in that area, John, and the amount of coverage of the Capitals coming from the Washington Post. Um, and all these other papers in, um, not papers, I should say, all these other media outlets in DC, the sort of the, the 82 hour like party that Alex Ovechkin and the players went on. It was fascinating to me, John, because it wasn't just a DC story. All that stuff got massive national play. And I'm wondering why you think that is. Was it just, uh, because like the, the players on the team embraced it, embraced their drunkenness, like over the next 72 hours and the videos were fantastic or was it something else? And you live in that area. So I'm curious on your take. By the way, before I uh, came on this, I actually was reading a story on the undefeated by uh, Wilbon that has a headline. Washington DC is a stage lar- large enough to fit LeBron James. So I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, um, so you have a couple things at play here, and Chad isn't going to understand this at all, being from Boston. But DC has not had anybody even make the divisional, the semifinals of the playoffs since 1998, and has not had a winner of any of the, the four major sports since 1992. I'm discounting DC United, which always irritates uh, MLS, but you know, for football, basketball hockey and baseball, nothing since 92. So that, that's a long time. I mean, I have, a, I have a 19-year-old son that has like, seen nothing but heartbreak. So I think that you have – it's not quite where the Cubs were. It's not quite where Cleveland was. But, it, you know, it's, that's a pretty long time. And you saw this just sort of explosion of, wow, we're, we're on top. And, then, and the entire city bought into it. And I think that if you combine that with – you know, who's the biggest star in the NHL right now? I mean, it's, it's uh, Ovechkin is certainly within the top three, I think, in terms of the most recognizable people. And the way that Ovechkin, you know, the, uh, uh, celebrated was just, uh, uh, you don't see that all the time. You, you see, everybody says, like, you know, act like you've been there before. He acted like he's never been there before and might never get there again. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was so, it was so fun just seeing this unbridled joy and they were at it again last night as well. And it's uh, it, I, I think that that's just a unique story that you don't see all the time. You don't see people running through the streets with, uh, with, with, with uh, the Super Bowl trophy. I mean, he was, 
out there in Georgetown swimming in a fountain. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was it, it was just utterly hilarious. And and the entire it they basically took the Stanley Cup and celebrated with the fans. You know, they didn't go to their yeah. sort of like roped off party. You know, they, they were out there with the fans. Everybody's getting selfies and they, they were interacting with them. And it was like it was just a really neat, cool story in a market that was so thirsty for, for some sort of winner. And it, it, it was all these forces that, that collided to, to, to make it a national story. That's well said. They sort of humanized the Stanley Cup celebration um, by doing everything you just said they did. Um, and it's been incredible to uh, it's been incredible to watch. All right, well, we will uh, finish up on this, guys. And, Chad, I'll start with you. The NBA Finals were down. This isn't surprising at all. Average 17.65 million over the four games. That's still a monster, monster number in sports. But the least watched of the four Warriors Cavalier series, not surprising at all, I think, when something is a sweep, that is bound to happen. The NBA said that the 2018 NBA postseason, however, was up across all networks, uh, averaged uh, close to 5.3 million viewers up from about five, uh, a little over 5 million viewers from 2017. What do you make of the NBA right now, Chad, in terms of interest in relation to what ESPN and Turner paid for that interest? There's always debates on did Turner and ESPN pay too much, and they probably did overpay, but to me that's not really the point. They have so much, particularly ESPN, so much NBA programming that I think it turns out to be a great deal because I think without that programming, ESPN would be in may, I mean, would be in significant trouble in terms of what they're going to do with content. The league's demos are young. The league's demos are diverse. Uh, it's a great league for that. But no arguing this at all. The finals were down, and the um, if we got Warriors Cavs again, I think they'd be down again. Uh, I'm not sure I have a question for you, Chad, but I would just be interested in your observations on all that. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's G.R. Smith's fault, first of all, in terms of what the finals <laughs> ratings were. Because if, if Cleveland had won game one, uh, interest would have rocketed because nobody gave Cleveland yep. real shake going in to uh, to the series. And then LeBron goes out and plays arguably the best game of his career in game one. They they should have won it, uh, made free throw or, or by George Hill or, or Smith uh, putting the ball back or Ty Luke calling the timeout to get a last shot. So many what ifs there, but I think people recognized then that when they didn't win that game, series was over or was not going to be as competitive as uh, as as game one might have looked like. Uh, and Golden State took care of business. Uh, so to the point where probably game four and game five were both anticlimactic, even going into them. So that was a tough break there, but they did get game seven uh, in both of, both of the finals, and it's kind of it's easily forgotten now because. Golden State steamrolled through the finals, but Houston damn near got them there. So it's not like they're completely, uh, completely invincible, and that that brings a little bit of, uh, I guess, a little bit of suspense into next season. But in terms of the league, I mean, I'm with you. Uh, if I have a bias, uh, it's probably uh, that I really, really enjoy the NBA. I think it's the best league, as the hashtag uh, it goes, for a lot of different reasons. The uh, uh, not just the caliber of play and the general uh, enjoyment of watching guys shoot at the level that they do now, but the, the awareness of the league's veteran uh, leagues uh, established superstars, whether you're talking about LeBron or Curry or 
you know, go right on down the line that they're, uh, they're socially aware. They're not afraid to speak out, but they also have a lot of fun, which, uh, which is why Twitter is such a, Rick Mace had a great piece in the post about it, talking about how, how NBA Twitter actually enhances your enjoyment of the game, which is, uh, something you, you know, social media usually doesn't enhance anything good. So, uh, it's really <laughs> fascinating to see how that has played out. And, uh, the NBA just seems to be the, the smartest and most advanced and most likable and most fun league, especially when you hold it up next to the NFL and how they handle controversy and how they handle their own problems and uh, how they add detriments to the game. Like nobody knows what a catch is anymore. Uh, so uh, I think it's a, uh, in my, my admitted bias about the, where this league stands right now, I think it's a really good deal for the, for uh, ESPN and for TNT. And I think ESPN in particular has done a really good job programming around the league. I, I really became a big fan of the jump this year. I think Rachel Nichols not only is a good host on that uh, and uh, got better and better and better at it, but they, they've really surrounded her with a, a cast of uh, uh, cast of co-hosts who aren't afraid of sharing an opinion that actually feels like a real opinion. So it ends up being a really fun conversation on that show. So uh, NBA is the best league. The hashtag is absolutely true. And uh, I don't think either uh, Turner or uh, ESPN ABC should have any regrets about the deal they made. And John, you're gonna. One of the great things about the NBA, of course, is the off season, and particularly when LeBron James is making a big decision. NBA Twitter and NBA free agency is. I mean, we saw, we've seen over the last couple of years just how crazy that is. But particularly to this conversation, how much content that that can create. I mean, in the in the summer when you are. You know, we have seen the ESPNs of the world coming up with some really dumb ideas for summer programming. I mean, you know, essentially the kind of stuff that uh, makes you want to jump off a building, basically. But now they, um, you know, NBA offseason is phenomenal. At times it's better than the regular season and the postseason. So, um, again, I'm, I'm with Chad. I think it's the, right now I think it's the most interesting league. I think it's the most interesting league if you are a rights holder. But – they definitely paid for the privilege. Where do you stand? Well, I think it's so funny that you both have this opinion, and I, I, I think I share it, but you both have this opinion after what has to be the worst-case scenario for ESPN in the finals, which is a four-game <laughs> right. sweep when it was comp- – it was not – after the first game, it was a fait accompli. It was not competitive whatsoever, and, uh, and, and the ratings showed it. They lost money on it because they weren't able to sell advertising through uh, you know games – five, six, and potentially seven. And so that was a disastrous end to it. But, you know, much like the World Cup, let's wait and see. And I I think that, uh, you know, if you take a look at the the playoff ratings, if you take a look at the interest, I mean, last last year, I think last year might have been the first time that the the NBA was pretty much an 11-month league, you know. And, and, uh, you know, the NFL has been doing that for a decade. And uh, every other league is trying to figure out what they can do in the offseason. You know, the uh, baseball's done the hot stove league, which, you know, catches on here and there, I guess. But the NBA and where superstars are going to go and how you're going to beat the Warriors and these, these just these uh, phenomenal uh, uh, superstars like, like LeBron James. Everybody knows LeBron James and what he does is news and, and, and what he does off the court is news. And uh, I, I think that, you know, that's going to help. I, I think that it's impossible to look at the NBA and not see a league that's still uh, ascending uh, and, and going up. Uh, and I think that, you know, NBA, uh, ESPN and Turner are going to be the beneficiaries of that. 
Uh, John, I hear what you're saying, but uh, let's keep in mind: we get the Pacers and the Rockets, we're looking at 13 million. We get the Raptors and the Rockets, we're looking at 12 million. So I hear you on the ratings, but still, the interesting thing about the sweep is still like it's still such a monster number because it's the Cavs Warriors. But you are right. I mean, ABC takes takes a terrible bath, as Chad said, because George Hill doesn't hit a free throw, and J.R. Smith uh, somehow thinks they're up 15. As he's trying to run out the clock, so uh, uh, yeah, it's fascinating though. It's and uh, uh, it's going to be an amazing summer, and especially if LeBron James leaves and goes to another team. In- in- interestingly enough, incredible news for ESPN and Turner because it creates so many additional storylines. All right, I'm going to bring you guys back, and I promise the next time I bring you back, the intro is not going to take 15 minutes. I'm going to get you. You guys are going to be able to start v- right away. Is there anything you two want to promote before I before I before we kick you off? I'm just all caps all the time down here. That's no kidding, Chad. Anything you want to promote? Any appearances on uh, Kirk and Callahan or Nesson that we need to promote with you? <laughs> no, hell is not frozen <laughs> over quite yet. But uh, one thing I'd like to uh, sort of uh, just mention is uh, we, there's a story up here in Boston that Nesson cameraman. Uh, announced in January 2017, a guy named John Martin, that he had ALS and uh, he had to leave the job. And uh, in the time since, his colleagues as uh, cameramen and the other people in the Boston media have sort of rallied around him. Uh, there's a thing, it's sort of this organic thing they call Cafe Martin, which is a porch in his house where they go visit. But uh, and, you know, try to keep them in good spirits and talk about the good times and all those sorts of things that friends do. And uh, one of the things that they've done, uh, his former nesting colleagues, uh, uh, in particular, uh, Brian Brennan and uh, Pat Gamir and Paul Devlin, two of them were cameramen and one of them who was an on-air personality, sold merchandise to, to try to help his family pay some medical bills. And uh, I think if you Google Cafe Martin or you, or you uh, look up John Martin, the name of the cameraman, uh, you'll find out what they're doing. It's one of the coolest, most uh, organic and generous things I've ever seen uh, as a media writer. So I just wanted to throw that out there. It's kind of a regional thing, but uh, I think it's something that would probably appeal to people on the national level a little bit too, just to see a good thing happening. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out, Chad. So that's John Martin. Um, people are raising money for his battle against ALS. Um, you can go. Mm-hmm. You can type John Martin ALS. Uh, there's a customink.com fundraising site, which where I think you can buy the hat and contribute yep. um, to him. So, yeah, check that out. I did, Chad Reed, but I think both you and some other stories in the Boston area, that, that seemed to be yeah. a, really, um, a really pretty amazing sort of, um, you know, ground roots kind of um, um, thing for this, uh, so this cameraman. I know there's a GoFundMe, too, for the Martin family as well probably just type Martin GoFundMe page. I imagine it'll come up. So check that out. And uh, Chad, thanks for, uh, thanks for, um, thanks for me. Actually, here I am here. www.gofundme.com slash jmartinfund. www.gofundme.com slash jmartinfund. Check that out. Um, John Orand, Chad Finn, thanks as always for joining us on the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, we will definitely have you guys back soon. Thanks again. Thanks, R.D. Thanks, Rich. Today's episode of the Sports Media Podcast is also brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy 
and you only have to go to one place to get it done, ZipRecruiter.com slash Richard. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't just stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you'll never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. That is results. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And that's right, my listeners can now try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Richard. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-I-C-H-A-R-D. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash Richard. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right. My thanks to uh, our roundtable, John O'Rand and Chad Finn. And now we bring on Isabel Kershunian from the Washington Post. Hopefully I did not mangle that name too bad. If you are a Washington Post writer, uh, if you are a Washington Post reader, I should say, and a fan of the Washington Capitals, you are certainly familiar with Isabel's work. I'm not sure she's had any sleep in the last uh, 96 hours. But Isabel, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm pretty excited to do this. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's pretty cool. Right, the checks in the mail for that, Isabel. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, the um, what is kind of fascinating to me, and I hit a little bit on this with John O'Rand, who is a Washington person as well, is just how much interest there has been in the Capitals winning the Stanley Cup beyond Washington. You are at the forefront of this coverage. Can you give listeners just a sense of what the last, let's say, uh, couple, we're taping this on Wednesday, um, June 13th, the day after the parade. Can you give me a sense of just what your last week has been like and the kind of uh, assignments and just workload you've had to deal with? Yeah, I mean, my job for game five, obviously you go into that game, you know there's a possibility that they're going to win the Stanley Cup that night. Um, so my job for the game is write the game story, um, which is, you know, actually kind of nice, even though it's a much bigger gamer, um, as far as significance and everything else, um, it's not a whole lot different from, you know, what I do any other of the hundred games I've covered this year. Um, so from there, I think I wrote the running version, which means I, you know, filed as soon as the game was over. And I didn't actually write through because I wanted to be able to just um, follow Ovechkin around the ice without, like, the pressure of kind of a deadline. And um, fortunately, the runner, the bosses were happy with it, and we were able to stick with that. Um, So I was literally, like, anywhere Ovechkin went, I was able to follow him. And we had uh, seven reporters in Vegas. Uh, So I knew everything else was going to be covered. Like, I didn't have to you know, worry about talking to Devontae Smith-Pelly, who's obviously a big story, or Jacob Verano, or, you know, Barry Trotz. Like, I was just sort of able to focus on my thing. You know, Adam Kilgore, who's my colleague, was, um, you know, writing about, he was tracking the couple and, you know, followed them from, like, party to party. Um, So we had, like, a pretty good plan in place going into it for in case they won. The next day, you know, I was working on the Ovechkin story, calling some people, gathering some stuff. 
Um, I think we had a follow about like, the significance of passing the cup. Um, Kilgore's story, like partying with the cup, um, ran. And then, um, you know, we had like kind of just a plan for like, you know, the next couple of days. And, you know, we knew they were going to like this bar in Arlington as like kind of their first stop in Washington. So we had like reporters there to take video. What we didn't expect, I knew they were going to be, you know, at Nats Park on Saturday and I was there. Um, you know, and you're just writing kind of the scene of the cup falling on. Barry Sullivan and I kind of all postseason have been working on this, you know, big season story. You know, what this crazy season, why it was so improbable and kind of the details of, you know, how it could have all fallen off the rails multiple times. Um, so that ran, you know, online on Saturday. But what we didn't expect was, like, exactly how crazy they were going to go with the cop, like their celebrations. And in this age of social media, I think that's what really, really elevated the interest. I mean, along with the fact that, like, Ovechkin winning the cup is, like, a big story, you know, kind of compared to the NBA where you have, you know, a team that's won three times in the past four years, this is kind of a fresh thing. I think it would have been a big deal if Vegas had won, too, for the kind of freshness of it all. But kind of, you know, them jumping in the fountain, all their parties, you know, them being in Georgetown and running into Jared and Ivanka, they were Instagramming, like, them getting tattoos. I mean, there was just so much, like, going on and we were able to like track all of it and kind of put together posts through like other people's social media. Um, I think that's what elevated really the interest even more because it was so fascinating seeing them celebrate like that. I think it was like fairly unique to just see like athletes like hanging out with people in Georgetown, like random fans and like just strolling in the cafe Milano, like unannounced. Um, so yeah, I mean, we put together like multiple special sections. Um, it was pretty cool. We, you know, the post went pretty hard on its coverage, and I'm proud of like the team effort and all of that. Isabel, you are fluent in Russian, correct? Uh, yes, I am. You're also I learned a certified scuba diver. <laughs> yeah. not, I like that combination of fluent in Russia, certified scuba. How much does your fluency in Russian? Um, how much has that helped you cover this team, given the number of Russians, and particularly that the most prominent player on the team is Russian? Yeah, to be honest with you, I don't think I'd have this job if it wasn't for my fluency in Russian. Um, Alex Pruitt, when you know he was on the B his first and only year, um, right after, or when he was going into the playoffs, at that time, um, it was really his first full season with the Capitals, and his English was pretty rough still. So, you know, they put me on uh, the B, you know, just to kind of help him out, be his backup reporter. And really, my main like job was to like talk to Kuznetsov in Russian. Um, so you know, and that led to you know, and through love for Sports Illustrated, the following summer, that led to me kind of stepping into the B role. And I even remember like when I interviewed, um, you know, for the post internship four years ago now, um, Matt Vita, the sports editor, had asked me. Um, are you really fluent in Russian? I said, yes. He was like, do you think you would be able to talk to Alex Ovechkin? I was like, yeah, I just don't know what I would ask him. I don't know anything about hockey. And I grew up in, you know, South Carolina. Hockey's not really a sport people watch a lot there. Um, so even, you know, like working with Pruitt that, you know, playoff run, and then my first year, like, it was a huge, like, learning curve because I just didn't know the sport and uh, was kind of going with it. But, I feel like the main thing with those guys is, you know, understanding kind of where they come from, the culture. Um, and obviously this year it got to be, 
you know, pretty relevant with, you know, Ovechkin, like, creating this Putin team thing, which you know, was a big story uh, for us in kind of December, I think it was, and then um, November, December time. And it was, uh, you know, I obviously I was in Russia for a month, you know, kind of doing some foreign news reporting, and I was able to visit with his mother, um, talk to her, talk to his dad, you know, see their country house. I mean, that's where, you know, kind of, really becomes important. I mean, a lot of the times those guys are doing interviews in English, because that's English, by the way, is now like better than pretty much anyone else's. Um, he might speak English very nice. Hmm. But he, you know, it's kind of their circles, you know, like the people around them, being able to talk to them, it's nice to have the language, you know, being able to get like Ovechkin's mother's voice in the story or something like that. Are you, um, are your parents Russian or, or is there, there must be, is that the connection? There must be some kind of Russian descent, I would think, in your background or yeah. off there. So my last name's Armenian, um, but my parents and grandparents were all born in Odessa, Ukraine, which is eastern Ukraine, so they all speak Russian. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. I was born in the States. Um, one of the – you were born in the States. Yeah, I was. Yeah, you're the only – yeah, you're the, like uh, – you're the only fluent uh, game co- fluent in Russian gamecock I've ever met. You went to South Carolina, correct? <laughs> yeah, well, so I was born in Chattanooga, then I grew up in New York City until 12, age 12, and then moved to South Carolina after that. Nice. Right, you've got the you can run for president one day as well with that, uh, that <laughs> resume. I like that. You've got the whole country covered. Um <laughs> I want to ask you about something that's real that's been written about certainly in media circles, but it, it is remarkable in that you, Liz Clark, who covers the Redskins, Chelsea Janes, who covers the Nationals, and Candace Buckner, who's been on this podcast and covers the Wizards, are all the lead reporters for those respective beats at the Washington Post. I believe that there has never been four women and any major Metro Daily, by the way, not just in the U.S., but globally, where the top beat people in all of sort of the major sports in that city are women. Um, I want to just ask you a general question. What is your takeaway from that other than the Washington Post hiring talented people independent of gender? Yeah, it's so we also have Kimberly Martin now, too, who's, you know, another Redskins beat writer. And the Redskins, that's right. Yep. And someone yep. who doesn't get mentioned, unfortunately, in all of this is Ava Wallace, who covers um, Georgetown and colleges for us. Um, there's also a young woman, uh, but, you know, obviously I think it's awesome. And, um, I think first and foremost, I hope so that we're all good reporters and we bring, I hope that's what makes our coverage stand out is that, you know, it's good to have diversity, whether it's race, gender, um, background, whatever, um, because you see the world differently and, you know, always having one kind of perspective or, you know, one group of people who have um, grown up a certain way covering, you know, a team, you're going to get kind of a lot of the same. And um, Sometimes, you know, you, when your audience is varied, I mean, there's a lot of women who like hockey, a lot of women who like the Redskins, a lot of women who, you know, like the Wizards. And um, there should be different voices. I don't think I write only for women, certainly. I mean, I think there are everyone, but it is good to have kind of different perspectives. And, you know, I think I might be able to identify different kind of stories than, you know, a male colleague and, you know, maybe the same, the other way that they identify different stories than I do potentially. Um, it, the best thing though is kind of the community that, 
you know, A, we have with each other, those of us who work at the Post, where, like, I was, you know, hanging out with Ava um, yesterday, and, you know, she and I were talking about work and, like, the different things we're struggling with or the things that are going well. And um, if sometimes if I have a, you know, situation with a player where, you know, I'm, like, frustrated about access or something like that, or, you know, I am able to call Candace potentially, or, you know, Liz is kind of like, you know, our, you know, matriarch of the group and um, certainly the wisest one that we can all kind of go to her. And um, But there's also, I think, I've always found it really important to, like, for us women, like, as far as women in hockey go, like, hockey media at least, like, I try to keep close with, like, all of them. Like, I... I remember when Emily Kaplan right. got the job at ESPN uh, covering the NHL, like I walked up to her at the draft and I said, Hey, I know this can be like sometimes an old boys club. Um, and you know, it might be awkward for you at first, but like, I'm here for you. You can call me whenever and like, we can hang out. Uh, and she's one of my closest friends now. So, you know, I think it's important to like stick together because, you know, a lot of times like, there's not these dramatic stories of like things that we have to like deal with, but it's like little subtle things that like deep down, you know, like, you know, that probably happened because I'm a woman or, you know, he probably said that because like I'm a woman in this business and there's not a lot of us. Um, and you know, it's not anything that like deserves a headline, but it's just the little kind of things that, um, you kind of know, but you don't, it's, not something you always want to make a big deal about because it might not be worth it, but it's good to have kind of your sisters in the business help you. I appreciate you answering that. Uh, Kim Martin has been on this podcast and she's a buddy. I can't believe she should really kill me for that. I totally, I totally <laughs> forgot her. Emily Kaplan, I worked with at Sports Illustrated. I'm very happy to see her success. She's a really hard worker. She's awesome. And at, um, at the MMQB and really talented uh, writer. So that's, uh, that's cool that you two guys have become friends. Um, how intimidating was it to um, be an intern at the Washington Post, you know, whatever you are, 19, 20 years old, you're walking into this newsroom, which, uh, you know, uh, famous for uh, all the president's men, all these Pulitzer Prizes, one of the most famous publications in the world. Is that, is that, was that an intimidating prospect to be that young or is uh, youth in that situation, uh, the ignorance of youth great that you don't maybe think about the pressure of working for the Washington Post? Yeah, no, it was pretty intimidating. I mean, like, I was, I started in the old building, too. I was 22. I just graduated from college. Um, and, uh, you know, like, you're sitting at your desk and you're thinking, like, did, like, Woodward and Bernstein, like, walk through here? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, even, like, seeing Marty, like, still intimidates me. Um, but, you know, I remember, like, my first day, like, I think I got lunch with um, Kent Bob, who's a fellow Dean Park, and um, we ran into Eli Saslow and I like tried not to lose my marbles cause he's awesome. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's really like the great thing about that place is that everybody is so like humble and like, you know, just thrilled to work there that you don't see a, a ton of egos. Um, or at least like the egos you do see, they really stand out because a lot of people kind of the attitude of most people is like, Oh, we work at the greatest place ever. And we're all lucky. Um, but no, I remember like at some point during my internship, um, this, you know, there was a crash where the plane was kind of shot down. I think it was a Malaysian airline and it crashed in Ukraine. Um, this was summer of 2014. And, uh, I emailed like, um, kind of the general assignment desk cause I was working, you know, with the breaking news of that. 
I said, like, hey, I know um, Russian. I'm pretty slow, like, reading, but I could, you know, especially if there's audio or you need me to just, like, listen to Russian news reports, like, I could probably, you know, help out with this. And they were like, get upstairs right now. I was like, all right. So, um, I, for a while there, I was just, like, sitting there listening to, like, Russian news reports and, you know, trying to, like, help out anywhere I could. But audio was released of apparently what the shooters were talking about or, like, the people who shot the plane down, rather, were talking about. And, like, we're, you know, I'm listening to it, and, you know, there's the subtitles, but the subtitles, like, there's some context missing, or it's, you know, not quite right. Like, something said could be translated in two different ways, like, depending on the tense, or um, Russian's a weird language. So, you know, we're kind of, like, sitting in a circle, like, huddling, and Marty's, like, well, asking me, like, what does it say? And I think that was the, like, most stressful moment of my life um where like <laughs> i'm like a 22 year old intern and like potentially you know um guiding our coverage on this like huge thing um and like you know and i'm like confident that i heard this right and like what i'm saying but i'm also like oh my god if i screw this up i'm so fired <laughs> um so yeah fortunately it all worked out that's great. Marty Barron, uh, of course, the uh, managing editor. I think that's his title of the Washington Post. And if you've watched the movie Spotlight, um, that's uh, Lee Schreiber. Schreiber uh, yeah, in the Boston Globe. But that would be intimidating. At, uh, um, you make the argument, I think, maybe the best newsman or news person, I should say, in the uh, in the country. Um, I want to finish up with this, Isabel, because this is really fascinating to me. When I talk to you uh, – uh, when we set this up, I, I told you I wanted to just get into this a little bit. You um, you worked in the Moscow Bureau of the Washington Post from January 12th through February 9th. That's kind of an amazing assignment, given that it was in the middle of the hockey season. So um, I have a couple questions about some of the stuff you did there. But first off, how how did that come about? How you're in the you're covering the Washington Capitals, and all of a sudden um, we see a, a tweet from you that oh by the way I'm going to Moscow to be working on the news side for a month. How did that happen? Yeah, so it really goes back, like, a few years. Um, I think I was at Kent Babb's, like, book party. I was a couple glasses of wine in, and Kevin Merida, who at the time was managing editor and is now with The Undefeated, um, walks up to me and he's like, hey, I can't, like, wait to get you to Moscow um, to fill in for, you know, burn bounds, like, paternity leave. I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like... <laughs> never talked about me going to Moscow and um it kind of like came out of nowhere and that ended up like not happening I think they had hired like a new contract person at the time but like the seeds were like in sort of planted that at least they saw that as something I was at least like capable of was doing like foreign bureau reporting um on the new side obviously and um you know I was like 23 at the time I was definitely not like ready then uh but you know, I started, like, talking to um, Doug Jell, who's the uh, – he's our foreign editor. Um, and, you know, Matt Vita, our sports editor, who was super supportive of me kind of being interested in that. Um, so this past – last summer, rather, you know, I met with Tracy Grant, the managing editor, and I really just thought, like, what do I do to kind of put myself in a position to do this, like, one day? I understand, like, I'm not just going to become, like – a foreign correspondent, you know, one morning, like I have to kind of start to work towards it or, you know, investigate it. Like, is there anything I can be doing now that, you know, maybe I can kind of start to slowly but surely, like, you know, 
put myself in a position that it could maybe happen um, years from now. And that wasn't me like complaining about covering the Capitals either. Like I love covering the Caps and it's a great like job, but it's certainly, you start to think ahead a little bit about, you know, what would be a cool thing. And um, she had said like, Hey, this isn't too soon to start talking about this. Like you put in three years, like I think you should get like three weeks there. Um, And so she thought it would be good for me to go for a month and, um, it made the most sense to do it, you know, in that January, February time. So that's when, you know, I had to get like Matt Vita's blessing and, you know, any other, like, I can't imagine any other place where like a boss would just be like, yeah, cool. We'll go like work for a different section in the middle of the season. Um, when, you know, <laughs> like totally fine. Like just go and leave in the middle of the year and we'll like allocate different resources there. But he was completely supportive. I was, really stunned and grateful. Um, I have to also shout out Jesse Doherty, who covered for me on the cap speed during the most boring month of the season. And uh, it was like awesome that they let me do it, that Doug Jell was cool with it and gave me quite a bit of responsibility. Um, and it was a really like eye-opening experience to do that for the month that I did. Can you give uh, listeners a sense of what it is like to be a young American reporter in Moscow? Yeah, it helps when you know the language, although, like, um, anywhere I went, you know, even if I asked for, like, a menu, like, they would be like, do you need the English? Like, my Russian has an accent to it. Um, it's probably just kind of unavoidable and will always be there. Um, yeah, it was hard because it was, like, kind of lonely. You know, usually you go to places, they're kind of like, you go on vacation, it's touristy, people know English, you're heat, you hear people around you, like, speaking English. It was like all Russian all the time if I wasn't in the bureau. And really then like Anton speaks Russian, um, Natasha, who like is uh our translator in the bureau, you know, she speaks English and Russian, but she's talking a lot of Russian. Um so you know, it, like the moments I could call like, you know, some of my Washington Post friends at night and like speak English were like it was such a relief in a way because like only thinking in Russian and speaking in Russian when you're not used to doing it so much, was, like, kind of draining. But the other thing was, like, yeah, I mean, I was a little, like, nervous. Um, you know, like, I would get into, like, a cab, and people would be like, you know, what are you doing here? What do you do here? And I didn't want to say, like, oh, my reporter for the Washington Post. Um, I think I, like, took steps to, maybe I, I didn't need to, um, because the people I interviewed, you know, otherwise, who, like, knew where, obviously where I was and what I did, um, they were cool. There's this kind of a... Um, hurdle you have to get over where your foreign media they're like already kind of distressful of you um but i think it helps me know the language for sure and once like you're in then like you know people are great and that's i think the misconception like i don't know people probably the same way like other countries might think of americans where you just assume like maybe everyone in america is like um trump or loves Trump or is like these bad people or, you know, whatever. Um, we're like, I think Americans have this like negative view of Russian people and like the people are pretty great. I mean, you know, they support their president by and large, but like they also have things that they want to, they want to see changed. And um, there's activists there who like are afraid to talk to like American media and, um, you know, have like, causes and you know things like that that part was you know really interesting to me is that 
they're going through, I guess, a lot of the similar things that we as Americans go through where, like, you know, you're complaining about something like your government is doing and um, you're trying to, like, you know, get petitions signed and get this changed and talk to your local legislators. And um, so, yeah, I mean, to a degree, it's, like, hard to get people to trust you. But once you're in, I mean, it is it's just like the same kind of reporting process. And if not like, you know, Russians in general are very, very kind of warm once they kind of invite you into their life, I guess. Today's episode of the sports media podcast is also brought to you by Buffalo Wild Wings. This time of the year brings us two things, graduation and Father's Day. And the gifts that go along with them before you buy your dad another tie or that grad a balloon that will probably float away. Not probably, it will float away. Ask yourself this, does my dad or grad like wings or sports or better yet, both? If the answer is yes, get them a Buffalo Wild Wings gift card right now. If you purchase $30 worth or more in-store or online, they'll give you a $5 bonus to keep for yourself. That is a gift that gives back. How generous of you, Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings Beer Sports, terms and conditions apply. Last one for me is, was there a story during that time that you were particularly proud of? Or I know you, I remember reading something that you did. Um, you, 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 you discussed how the rise of Me, the Me Too movement in other parts of the world is, is just not, does not exist in Russia due to patriarchal attitudes. So uh, you, you did end up... Um, you know, you did pieces very far away from sports. So I wonder if there was one that stood out either as a reporting challenge or just something you were really proud of. Yeah, I mean, that would be the one um, where it was, you know, that's, as a woman, I, you know, that's what it was, it focused a lot on, like, their domestic violence legislation, um, which is, like, a personal issue for me as well. But, um, you know, they basically don't have any domestic violence legislation. Um you know, it's a pretty, like, it's like the fine of two parking tickets um, if you, like, beat your wife. And then you have to show, like, all of this, like, kind of crazy evidence to, like, even get that much. And, um, you know, there's this kind of attitude of, you know, there's actually, like, an adage in Russia. And, like, if he beats me, he loves me. Um, and, you know, there is, like... Me Too is kind of seen as a joke in Russia. I mean, the, the story, like, sort of addressed it, that, like, you know, state-run media, like, they kind of make fun of it. Um, and, you know, even, like, I think liberal people there, you know, don't really, like, take it seriously, at least not at the time. I think some things have, you know, changed in the last couple of months, which is good. But I think the best way you kind of see the, you know, patriarchal attitudes is this, like, crazy, like, you know, domestic violence legislation where they're not, really, you know, doing anything to protect women, and it's these, you know, women legislators who are introducing the legislation, um, which was totally wild to me. Like, how does that happen? Um, and it's this whole, like, you know, we want to have, like, traditional families thing, and um, it was special to me because I got to go and, like, meet with some of the women who had been through, like, some of these horrible things, you know, who were with their kids who were, like, hiding because... Um, it's so hard to be like a single mother in Russia or like divorced or any of those things. It's such a, you know, kind of seen as this, you know, terrible thing. And um, that part was like pretty eye opening. Um, just the culture around that. And, 
yeah, that story was special to me because I felt like maybe it gave people a better understanding of um, how hard it can be for women over there. Isabel Krishudian uh, is a Washington Post reporter covering the Washington Capitals, but as she stated on this podcast, also has done stuff far beyond sports, including her time in the Moscow Bureau of the Washington Post. Uh, Isabel, um, I admire the work that you've done, and I thought you did an amazing job on the Capitals this year. I appreciate you coming on the Sports Media Podcast and continued uh, success heading forward. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to John Oran, Chad Finn, and Isabel Kushudian for uh, an interesting podcast and conversation. Thanks, as always, to Lou Pellegrino. Uh, please check out this podcast on um, on Apple Podcasts as well as uh, Google Play and Stitcher, previous podcasts. Carissa Thompson, um, that was a really good podcast, I thought, just in terms of how honest she was about hackers stealing her private photos and what she has had to to do to um, to deal with that. Um, a pretty emotional podcast. From Carissa Grant Wall, previously on that, how to cover the World Cup. Uh, Joe Tessator, Peter King, Doris Burke, Shaw Reeve. You can check all that out at the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast. Please uh, leave us a review and subscribe. It absolutely keeps the podcast going. Again, my thanks to the guests. My thanks to Lou. Thanks to Cadence 13. See you again on the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast.